0: This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, this radical happening in church history um, where there was a reclaiming of the core of the heart of Christian doctrine and since that time we've summarized the heart of Christian doctrine using the five solas. If you're interested in um, the refra- Reformation in terms of the split Between the Protestant and the Catholic Church, the five solas also give you the answer to that. In other words, the division between Protestant and Catholic, between the Reformation that sprung out and the Catholic Church they left behind, had to do with this word alone. Alone in every category. And so the five solas are that we are saved by Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, through faith alone, by the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone this morning we're going to look at faith alone. (coughs) And so uh, if you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to open it up to Romans chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find one nearby you stuck in the back of a pew that you're welcome to use. The index right at the beginning will get you to the New Testament letter um, to the church in Rome known as the book of Romans. talk about the five solos the five alones we need to remember that none of those alone stand alone meaning that all five go together and uh that also makes looking at all five of them very interesting because it's very difficult to pick up one without picking up the others it's like paper clips you know when you go to get a paper clip and somebody's conveniently connected them all together lifting one lifts them all up um but it's worth mentioning that uh that this one is to some degree where the Reformation starts. Um, the reason I say that is because this was the good news that Martin Luther rediscovered for himself. Before he began to proclaim it, uh, before he began to um, demand that the church recenter around these things, he, like the rest of us, was just trying to answer the big question what does it take? To be right before God. If you're not familiar with his story, um, he was just a young German boy who had aspirations to be a lawyer. And one night he got caught between towns in a terrible storm. The storm frightened him so bad, he made a vow to God and he said, God, if you get me out of this, if I survive tonight, I will dedicate myself to your service as a monk. And so, against his father's wishes, he became a monk, entered the monastery. Um, And while he was a monk, he began to be exposed both to the depth of Christian teaching during his time as well as to the scriptures, and he discovered that he hated God. And the reason he hated God is because he was fully aware of his own sinfulness. And so he resented God. He resented God's law. He was terrified of God. He had this internal turmoil that was constant. He threw himself into the life of a monk to try and solve that turmoil. He was uh, seeking confession with his brother monks um, multiple times a week. Sometimes his confessionals would last for hours. But never was his conscience assuaged. Never was he feeling assured (coughs) that everything was okay. He was terrified. One night he was reading in this very book, the letter written to the Romans. And he came across the phrase in chapter one, the righteousness of God very angry because that was the problem. That was what he hated about God was that God was so righteous and in comparison um, he couldn't stand up against. He resented that. But as he kept reading, he read these words. He said, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what made him angry and then he kept reading. From faith faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith and he read that the righteous shall live by faith as Paul quotes from the book of Habakkuk here and it aligned and suddenly he saw Christianity in a new light suddenly he recognized that we're not saved by our righteousness that we stand condemned in our lack of righteousness and that God has graciously offered in Jesus Christ a way solely by faith One of the primary texts for Luther in his proclamation, in his debates, in his understanding is the passage we're going to look at at the end of chapter 3 of the book of Romans this morning. So let's read it together and then we'll pray. We're going to pick up in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Let's pray. Father, faith is one of those words that's been held up to the light so long that, it for for much in our culture, it's left, it's lost its meaning. It's been reduced down to um, positive sentiments and fuzzy feelings or or just something in and of itself. And so I pray that we would recapture um, the meaning of faith this morning, that we would understand its centrality to what you've done in Jesus Christ um, and that we would proclaim with the reformers, with the early church, with Paul here in the New Testament, that we are saved by faith alone. We ask this in your name. Amen. One of the things Martin Luther did over the course of his life was translate the Bible into his mother tongue of German. Up to that point, the Bible was only available um, for the most part in Latin, and Latin was just a language that the scholars uh, and the monks and the priests were familiar with. And so the church of Luther's day didn't actually read the scriptures, and when they sat in a church service, when they went to Mass, they heard the words proclaimed in Latin, but didn't understand them. In fact, I've never been able to uh, to track this down, but I read once that when Luther began to preach in German to his church and began to do sermons like we do today, just walking through the scriptures, that the audience would generally talk over the top of him because they weren't used to having to pay attention. That wasn't a part of church as they knew it. They had to learn this aspect, but as he translated Um, the Bible, as you can imagine, that was relatively controversial. As we saw weeks ago, one of the alones, one of the sola, is scripture alone. And so Luther wanted to be disproven on the grounds of this book right here. While he was translating this chapter, when he got to verse 28, he, uh, he wrote this. I'm paraphrasing from the German, but you'll notice what I'm getting at here in verse 28, for we hold that no one is justified by faith. Uh, Sorry, let me read that again. For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And the Catholic church went crazy. They called Luther out and said, foul, you say that you're trying to be honest and true to scripture, but you've added a word in your translation. Early in his career, he explained, one, that that was the best understanding of what Paul was saying here, and two, that the way that German is spoken requires the word alone there to convey its meaning. Now, I'm not a very um, uh, learned German speaker, so I can't address the reality of that, but Luther was, and so was his context. He got so tired of having this battle that that later on he told his friends, you know what, if they ask where the alone c- came from, you just tell them that Luther said so. But obviously this is, this is the context, this is the, the battleground. This is the question we have to ask this morning. But I want you to recognize the question here is not, are we saved by faith, but are we saved by faith alone? Is there another thing on the table? Is there another asp- aspect or part to our salvation? How does one stand as righteous before God? Is it by faith alone or is it by faith and works? Is it by faith and something we bring to the table? So let's look at Paul's words here in verse 21. He says here, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. For context, notice that we begin here with the contrastive conjunctive but. That's not really a good place to begin anything, right? We're mid-argument here. So let me summarize what Paul has just done. He's explained, yes, the law demonstrates the character of God, the law given to Moses, the one recorded in the Old Testament, the one imparted to the Jews. It shows who uh, who God is, but he also shows that it's not been given as a means of salvation. That the Jews themselves couldn't come before God on the basis of the law and say, now you must accept me because I've done what you've asked. In fact, he shows in the verses beforehand that although the law does tell us what a righteous life looks like, it also shows us all to be condemned because we don't keep it. So notice what he says just a few verses before. In fact, just look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in this sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what he said here is the law does serve a purpose. It shows our need for a savior. It shows the distance between God and ourselves. And to be clear here, this is not just something for the Jews. If you go back and read the first few chapters of Romans, he'll point out the fact that there is an internal law that we all have as human beings. And the truth is, It may be easy for you to say, yeah, but how do you know my internal law is like your internal law? Maybe this is totally subjective. Fine. We can have that argument another day. But let's just start here. Do you keep your own law? The standard that you hold other people to, do you hold yourself to it? Or do you find excuses? Do you cite circumstantial consequences being Part of the you know, scenario, are you easier on yourself? Do you have much justice for others and much mercy for yourselves? Paul says here that the law, when we're honest and we hold ourselves before us, leaves us with a problem, not a solution. And he says here that that's by design. That God has given us such a thing as a conscience and such a thing as his revealed law, the Ten Commandments, so that we can be aware of our need. But now, verse 21, he's done something new. Do you hear the word now? That's not just now in the, in the logic of the argument, but now in the coming of Jesus Christ, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, in distinction from the law, away from the law. What does he say? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the first clarification we need to make here, because remember, before there was Protestants and Catholics, there was Jews and Gentiles, right? This is a major issue in the days of the New Testament. One of the primary issues was, if you are going to follow Jesus, do you have to become a Jew first? Must you be circumcised? People followed Paul's ministry all over the world. They came in as he was going out of town. They came in the back door into town and they'd say, hey, Paul's totally right. Jesus died for you. You can be saved through him, but you also must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So this is not just a historical issue for the Apostle Paul. This is something that people are asking, what must I do to be saved? What is the relationship between um, salvation and faith? And so when he says here that God has done something new, it's important we understand it's new in its happening and not new in its plan. Right? It's not that God gave the law and went, oh, that didn't go well. Let's go for plan B. No, the plan was always to give the law, to reveal sin, to restrain sin, to demonstrate God's character and to point forward. A Messiah. Now, actually, if you read the Old Testament books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we find the Old Testament law, it really does point to this reality. Because not only do we find laws that are moral, but we find the ceremonial law, right? We find laws about who's clean and unclean, how you know if you're holy or not holy. We find all of these things that present the difficulty of sinful people dwelling. With a holy God. And I know that's a lot to walk through. So let me just look at the sacrifices. Right? Built into the Old Testament law. Was the need for all Jews to bring sacrifices. And if you're not familiar what that would look like. Let's just take the sin offering as an example. The sin offering was required for all Jews to bring. And they would take um, a, a lamb of age. They would bring it to the altar before the priest. And unlike many of the offerings where the priest did the dirty work, this one, the person bringing the offering, would they would lay their hand on the animal, they would confess their sins, and they would slit its throat. And then as it bled out, it would be offered in total on the altar. Okay. What do you learn going through those motions over and over again, year by year by year? You learn a relationship between sin and death do you not right because i have sinned as you confess your sins the animal dies because i sin there is death for the wages paul says in this chapter of sin is death that's the consequence of sin and so it faces that reality head on and when you lay your hand on the animal you kill you identify with it connect yourself with this animal and so not only is the consequence death but here an innocent animal is dying on your behalf and because of that you live okay now we're going to come back to that idea but what I want you to notice is that built into the law is a self-understanding that we are in need of a savior that we are sinners that we can't keep the law and so there is such a thing as a sin offering now that's not just unique to the jews even for the irreligious, we spend our lives trying to justify that we are in the right. Finding some way to validate our existence, to demonstrate to ourselves, to others, and if there is a God to God, that everything's okay. And so we may, we may do it uh, you know, by the good acts of our choosing. We may do it by just measuring other people and making sure we're far enough up the line to get on the ride. Well, at least I'm not as bad as all those people. We may do it by blaming or excusing away all of our wickedness on things around us. It's circumstances, it's environment, you know, it's genetics, it's chemical imbalances. But the reality of human life is a will, and that will is a rebel. So we all deal with the reality of sin, and we find ways to do penance. We find ways to balance the scales. We find ways to do things about it. It's inherent in human life. Why? Because it's an inherent human problem. And so he says, even in the law and the prophets, it bared witness to the but now. God was going to do something. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that was to come. He was the promised solution that predates the law. The one that was given to Adam and Eve. The one where God said, I'm going to set this right. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to save you. And so now it's come. Now it's happened. Jesus has arrived just like the law and the prophets bear witness to. We've already looked at the law pointing to that in the sacrificial system. So let's talk about the prophets. You See, if you read through the prophets, which begin with Isaiah and flow through basically the rest of your Old Testament, uh, you will see that they talk about a handful of things. One, one of the things is they call Israel back to the covenant. They remind Israel of the agreement that they've made with God, the relationship that they have with him, and they basically say, you've been unfaithful. See, the prophets also remind Israel that they've fallen short. and They're constantly calling them back. They're warning of them of the consequences to come, but that's not the only thing they do. They look beyond the judgment that's coming through the destruction of Jerusalem, through um, you know, being carried away by these two foreign powers, Assyria and Babylon, which they rightly predict and comes to pass. They look beyond that to the restoration by grace of Israel, then being restored in the land, and then the coming of the one who was promised. You cannot read the prophets without constantly encountering the idea he's coming. Prophets bear witness to the fact that God was going to do something. And maybe no place do we find that more clearly presented than Isaiah 53. Let me just read you a selection of this. I want you to remember that Isaiah 53 predates the, the life and death of Jesus by hundreds of years. I want you to remember that these words are so profoundly similar to what we read in the Gospels and what we find in the historical records about who Jesus was that the Jews denied that it was a part of Isaiah for hundreds of years until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then we found a scroll that was almost complete of the entire book of Isaiah that predates the life of Jesus Christ. And it includes a word-for-word, exactly as we know it today, copy of Isaiah 53. So keep that in mind and then listen to these words here. Verse 4 of 53 says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him The iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now, this is not a sermon on Isaiah 53. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Isaiah says one is coming who's going to bear our guilt. One is coming and he is going to be crushed by God according to the will of God on our behalf. In fact, let me read just one last phrase here because it's especially important for what we're looking at this morning. It says that he's going to offer himself as an offering for sin and then he will see his offspring, right? Do you you hear the paradox in that? Is he dead or alive? Yes, Isaiah says. But listen to these last words here. He says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the tra- transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. What I actually want here in verse 11 he says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Okay, do you hear what Isaiah says there? By knowing this one, many will be made righteous. And it uses the word accounted righteous. That's one of the terms that Paul likes to use too. It means to do your sums. It means to do math, okay? And so the prophets and the law point forward to the need and the promise of a savior. And Paul says, but now he has come. He continues here back in the book of Romans, uh, <coughs> verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay. What is this new manifested righteousness of God? It's the righteousness of God available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you're up to date on the modern debates about this phrase, the righteousness of God, and this phrase, the faith of God. Of, or faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ, depending on your translation. Uh, frankly, it doesn't change what we're talking about a lick this morning, okay? Because even if you read this passage, uh, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, it still comes down to the same doctrine, that Jesus is the faithful one and we get his standing just through faith. Because it says here, for all who believe. Even if we're talking here about the faithfulness of Jesus It's available to those who place their faith in him, okay? There's no escaping this idea. But what does it mean? What does faith mean? I love how Martin Luther puts it. I had the privilege over the last four years of reading through the complete works of Martin Luther. It was fascinating. And I've put together a quote file that is very large, over those years and I was looking through it last night and this is what I found. Twice I found where he defines faith for us. This is the first one. He says, for to believe in Christ is to reach out to him with one's whole heart and to order all things in accord with him. Listen to how he puts it in another place. Therefore, faith is a constant gaze that looks at nothing except Christ. Here's the point. Faith is not just assenting yeah, that's true. It's not saying, yes, Jesus died. It's not even saying Jesus died for sinners. Faith is standing on the ground that you are saved in the death of Christ. Okay? For us, too often, the word faith, like I said, carries this connotation of, hey man, just have faith. Right? It's just, it's just this naked idea of positive thinking that all will turn out right in the end. No, faith for it to be faith, must have an object, number one. And the object here is Christ. In other words, if your faith is placed in yourself, or as a side note, if your faith is placed in the strength of your faith, then you're sitting on the branch that you're sawing off, right? You're just resting on nothing. Faith must have an object. Second, it is the object of faith that makes the faith right or wrong. I use this illustration often, but imagine imagine that you need to cross a river and there was a bridge there. Faith is crossing the bridge, okay? Now, maybe you're terrified and you crawl across that bridge. If you get on the bridge, you are trusting the bridge. You may trust it with shaking limbs and constant what-ifs, but you're trusting the bridge. If you decide to swim, it's not faith. And that's why I love he says that it's a constant gaze at Christ, okay? When we sing in the hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is an expression of faith. In Christ I stand. In Christ I am righteous. And so it's not just mental assent. And James challenges this. He says, you believe in God, congratulations. So do the demons and they shudder. Knowing that God exists, knowing that God is righteous, knowing that God sent Jesus, knowing that Jesus is God, all of that is required for there to be faith, but it is not faith itself. If I were to have a stool up here, I could point to the stool and say, yes, I believe that stool holds me up, but I don't trust the stool until I sit on it. Okay, That's what faith is. And so he says here that through that comes the righteousness of God. Now you go, now how does this solve the problem? What does it matter if Jesus lived a righteous life if I do not? How, is it, how does it have anything to do? In fact, why is it fair that someone else died in my place? Okay. The way God has designed salvation is he's done everything required in Jesus Christ and freely offered it to us. And so we stand as righteous before God because he imputes, as we read in our catechism this morning, imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. One of the metaphors the New Testament uses is like a garment. And so the garment of your own life, of your own works, of the life you live is stained with sin. But in Christ, we're given new clothing. It's not us. It's not ours. It's what Luther called alien righteousness. It's foreign to us. And it's placed upon our shoulders, and because of it, we are righteous. Now, he says at the end of verse 22, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you hear what it says there? It says that this problem is universal, that the need is universal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, when we look at the glory of God here, the idea here is not that we're not divinely not that we've fallen short of his glory in that way. It's that our goal, our created purpose, according to the book of Genesis, was to be in the image of God, to reflect God's character, to to mirror it back to him, to mirror it to one another. And that is where we've fallen short, okay? We're talking about purpose here. And our purpose is to glorify God, but because of our sin, we have not done so. And Paul starts once again with this. He says, there's no distinction. If you sit in this room, if you live and breathe, if you identify yourself as part of the human race, sorry, the human race, you have all sinned and fallen short. And that's bad news. It is. Because it's tremendously serious. Listen, I know the idea of hell often makes us uncomfortable. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he identifies a correlation between hell and what I'll call this morning hell on earth. He recognizes that there are things in this life that are destructive, damaging, hateful, and hurtful, and they're not just over there things. They're things that penetrate deeply into your heart. Okay? And so these are... This is a tremendously serious reality, but it's also good news, okay? Christianity is an equal opportunity offender. Whoever you are, you stand condemned, just like the rest of us. All have sinned, and therefore, all can be saved. In fact, Paul here is going to narrow this down. When he says there's no distinction in the sentence, he's going to continue and say, therefore, there's no distinction in the solution, If you stand here this morning, you stand and Jesus is ready and available to save you. No pre-existing conditions, no having to qualify in advance, no placement test. Notice what he says here. He says, verse 23, yes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so it says here that, that all have sinned and anyone who is justified is justified how? By his grace as a gift, first and foremost. If this righteousness is alien, if this righteousness is received only by trusting, if this is all about what Jesus did on your behalf, then the only way to understand it is as a gift. Because if you could earn it, if you could earn it, then it's faith and Whatever qualifies you for faith. But he says here, no, it's a free gift. And we'll talk more about that when we do sola grati, when we look at grace alone next week. Um, but notice the second thing he says. They are justified how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus So he's given us two pictures of our salvation here. The first one is justification. That's a legal term, okay? When a judge bangs the gavel and says not guilty, that's justification, okay? And what it says here is that we are declared righteous, justified, gavel-banged, court session over in Jesus. And we can look at that and we go, but isn't isn't that just a false statement? And in one sense, yes, it's false because you also stand condemned. You stand totally and completely guilty. In the Latin words that Martin Luther uh, loved to use of us, as Christians, we are simulti, sancti, imprecari, simultaneous saint and sinners. But the sin is ours and the saint is Jesus. So why is this appropriate? Why is this okay? It's because... Jesus bore the punishment that we had coming. Okay. You guys know the idea of double jeopardy? Go back, not, not the second round of the TV show, uh, but the concept legally. Go back and remember the movie from the 90s on double jeopardy. I'll summarize it for you if you don't remember. Uh, I believe a woman is wrongly convicted of murdering her husband and she was actually framed by her husband so he could get away. So she does her time, she gets out of prison, discovers her husband is still alive and realizes now I'm free to kill him because I've already been punished for it, okay? Double jeopardy is that you can't be punished for the same crime twice. Listen to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Have you ever read that before? 1 John 1.9? It should be striking to you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. You see, that's what some of us want. We want a bloodless sacrifice. We want salvation with no cost. And we say we're uncomfortable with this idea of judgment and hell or that Jesus died in my place. And so I want, why can't God just forgive? That is a farce. What we're talking about in Jesus Christ is not faithful and merciful, not just God looking the other way saying your sin doesn't matter. But taking it so seriously that he became a man and took the penalty upon his own shoulders. So it's not false. It's absolutely just for God to forgive you in Jesus Christ because the penalty has been paid. Jesus prays in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. When he uses that phrase of the cup, it can be foreign to us because we think of hockey, right? What, what is this cup? If you read the Old Testament closely, you will find one, one metaphorical cup, and that is the cup of God's wrath, the judgment that he is stirring up and preparing and fermenting to pour out upon the world. When Jesus stands in the garden and he sweats great drops of blood, And he says, if there's any other way, let this pass. He's recognizing that he's about to endure the full consequence of what sin deserves. That's why Paul later in this letter can say, there is therefore now no condemnation. Is that a legal term? Yes, it is. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me put it in terms of the cup. Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. There's not a drop left for you if you're in Jesus Christ. You say, that's not fair, amen. God has done something more than justice. He's been merciful. But not just a farce of mercy, not just a falseness, not something that denies his holiness, but something that solves the problem, as we'll see in just a minute. And so it says here we've been justified. The second thing is it says that we've been redeemed. You see, sin is not just a sense of guilt psychologically. It's also an enslavement. Sin is not just something you want to do, although that's true. If we're going to be complex and address it fully, it's also something you don't want to do and can't stop doing, right? We wish we could compartmentalize our sin and be mean to the mean people and be totally loving to the loving people, and that's not what happens, right? We would think that we could hermetically seal sin into other places, but in our marriage, in our family, that we wouldn't bring it into the mix, but we do. We say, I have a standard of living that I'm going to keep, and we throw ourselves against the grain of who we are. We bang our head against the wall, and we come up still a sinner in frustration. Redemption means that part of what God does in Jesus Christ is sets us free. Now, that's more than justification, but it begins with that. It begins with that. And then he continues on, and he says this, He says, we're justified and redeemed in Christ Jesus, verse 25, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. When it says propitiation by his blood, that means sacrifice. That means death. The word he uses here, helastrion, he doesn't use it very often. In fact, the only other place we find it in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, it's translated mercy seat. If that's what Paul is pointing to here, he's reminding us of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the holy place where God dwelled. He'd take the blood of the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement and he'd sprinkle it on the covering of the ark. This gold-plated lid to the ark that had the two cherubim bowing in worship over it. He may be pointing to that and, and if he is, then what he's saying here is that we have access to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm comfortable with that interpretation because we're only going to get another chapter before he makes that clear. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified with God, we have peace with God, and not only that, we have access by the grace in which we stand. We can boldly enter into the throne room of grace. But it's a sacrifice here. And then notice what he says here, by his blood, finally to be received by faith. How do you access the death of Jesus? You entrust yourself to him. You entrust yourself to his sacrifice. You say, my death, he died. His righteousness, he gives me. Now, notice why this is important. Verse 25, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Listen, what is he saying here? He's speaking to the Jews in particular, and he says God had to send Jesus because it was never about a dead lamb. God has freely offered you forgiveness in the sacrificial system, knowing that the blood of goats and bulls cannot cleanse sin. God forbear the punishment that the Jews deserved, kept it away from them. Why? Because He was going to do something about it, and so He gave them forgiveness on credit. Okay. And so, if God is going to be righteous, then Jesus had to come. Then notice the second thing He says here. He says, verse twenty-six: It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This, the death of Christ and trusting in him through faith makes God both just because he punishes sin and justifier because he didn't punish us. This is the tremendous paradox of the character of God, that he is so holy that Jesus had to die, that he is so loving that Jesus was willing to die, that sin is such a big deal that it cost the full wrath bore by Jesus's shoulders and that you're such a big deal to God that he willingly bore that consequence. When we ask, is God righteous? We say yes, because he is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Sometime when you retire, just read the entire Old Testament and flag every place where God says that he is not going to let the guilty get go free where he will not acquit the guilty, where he challenges those in Israel to be just and to follow the law and make sure there's consequence. This is a serious issue to God because we're not talking about relative goodness, relative righteousness, relative justice. We're talking about divine goodness, righteous and justice. We're talking about perfection. And so the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ is that he solved that issue. How can God get rid of evil and not get rid of us? Now, he says probably the most obvious thing in this whole passage in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. He says, if this is the case, if we stand right before God solely because of something somebody else did, in fact, something God himself did, and invites us into freely, then where's room for boasting? Listen, when we're talking about works of the law, when we're talking about these things, really these are the two options on the table. Either you live your life denying God's law and say, I will be a law unto myself. I will make my own rules. I will determine the validation of my own case. I will be the vigilante and get what's mine. And so you turn away and you go, forget this. I will be my God. Or you take the works of the law, you take the works, the things you know that God would have you do, or the ones recorded in the Old Testament, or your Jewish faith as a Jew, and you say, this gives me my rights before God. Either way, either way, it's different than what we're talking about here, because, because when we come as if God owes us something, Only is it short-sighted, but it's also inherently tainted because we go, I am the giver and you receive, I initiate and you respond, I am God, I've manipulated the pieces, I've done what you required of me and most importantly, both of them run from God, they keep God at a distance. One says, I want nothing to do with you, I'll go my own way. The other says, I want nothing to do with you, so I'll keep you away by doing what you ask of me. Don't think that we can't use good stuff to keep God at arm's length. Of course we can. Luther scrambled at it for a decade as a monk. Get off my back, God. Leave me alone, God. But if salvation looks like this, where's the room for us to stand on our own two feet is either better than God who knows better than God or is one who's kept our end of the agreement so why haven't you kept yours let me address something really quickly if you've grown up in the church there is a terrible danger of entitlement of misunderstanding Christianity and thinking okay so this is the way it works I do the right things I go to church tick the boxes and then God protects me from cancer. He gives me the job I want. He gives me the spouse I want. He gives me the life that I've been dreaming of. And then you become an adult and life happens. And you go, hey, wait a minute. God, where are you? This isn't fair. Some of us have to take the fact that we're sinners on faith. Now you do that long enough and it will validate itself. I promise. But this is the way we come. There is no boasting. There is no hold, holding God, uh, God accountable for what he owes you. He says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No. If salvation was by works, or even if it was a commingling of faith and works. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also am a good pick. I believe in Jesus, but I also have kept my end of the bargain. That got me started, but now I live the Christian life, and so I've earned my way into heaven. All of that is going to lead to boasting. Who comes out as the hero of that story? You do, the lawkeeper. But Jesus was the lawkeeper. He says this in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the verse where uh, Luther added the word alone, justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Now, here was the argument of the Catholic Church, and to some degree it's still the argument today. Luther had to add the word alone to say salvation is by faith alone. But if you go over and you read the book of James, it's going to say in the original Greek that justification is not by faith alone. It actually says it. And so it They criticized Luther. They would criticize what I've told you this morning and go, doesn't the Bible in James clearly say that faith is not enough, that there must be works, that a faith without works is dead? Hear it again. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What does apart from the works of the law mean? It means without them. Okay. So what do we do with the James passage? Paul in chapter 4 is going to say, let's look at Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted for him for righteousness. Genesis 15. James says, fine, let's look at Abraham. Abraham sacrificed Isaac and in that he was justified. Which is it? Was he justified by faith or by works? And I would argue in both cases, He's justified by faith. James's argument is not that we need faith and works. It's that faith without works isn't faith at all. Okay? James's communication is about what real faith is, not if we need more than faith. And so he says not faith without, uh, he says faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. It's inactive. Here's the thing. Faith leads to salvation, faith leads to righteousness, it also leads to obedience. This is how um, the reformers put it, in fact, once again, in the words of Martin Luther, the true gospel, however, is this, works or love are not the ornament or perfection of faith. That's how the Catholic Church explained it, that it begins in faith, but it's perfected in love, perfected in works, right? So you start with belief but you do the second half. God begins your journey by grace and grace alone, but then by your own work, you finish the journey, okay? He says, it's not the ornament or perfection of faith, but faith itself is a gift from God, a work of God's in our heart, which justifies us because it takes hold of Christ as the savior. Human reason has the law as its object. It says to itself, this I have done, This I have not done, but faith in its proper function has no other object than Jesus Christ, the son of God, who was put to death for the sins of the world. It does not look at its love and say, what have I done? Where have I sinned? What have I deserved? But it says, what has Christ done? What has he deserved? And here the truth of the gospel gives you the answer. He has redeemed you from sin, from the devil, and from eternal death. And so he maintains here, no, we're saved by faith alone. And even when we as Christians do the right things, we don't look at those right things as a validation or of our salvation. We actually look at it as an evidence of our salvation. Right? Because where there was only death, there is now life. Paul, uh, Luther and Calvin both like to use the word fruit: that the fruit of faith is obedience. I want you to recognize that although both of them have faith and obedience, there's one major difference, and that's motive. We obey not to receive salvation, but because we are saved. We obey not because we're good enough to keep God's, but because God's been so tremendously, tremendously good to us. When you hold Jesus as an object of faith, when you gaze at him entirely, it changes you. Because you realize that God's goodness is actually good. That his rules are the rules of a loving father. That his warnings are not just to harsh your buzz, but actually because they push you towards the flourishing of human life. That God has your best interest in mind. That he's a loving father and like any loving father, you want to be like him. And so we don't work so as to be saved. We work from a place of salvation. We have the rest in advance. Christianity is the only religion that puts the, puts the race after you're saved, not before. It's not if you work hard enough, if you run hard enough, then maybe you'll cross the finish line. No, it's now that you've been saved, run the race. And I know it's easy to get those things messed up. Here's a good litmus test. How are you doing with boasting? You want to know when your faith is off focus? How do you see yourself in comparison to other Christians? How do you see yourself in comparison to non-Christians? When you enter into the throne room of grace, in other words, when you pray and you have needs, do you go based on the validations of your own life that says, look, I've done what I'm supposed to do? Or do you come for mercy? Do you come on the grace and the action of another? Do you come and say, Jesus has given me access here. You have made me your child. finish here he makes an important point here he says in verse 29 or is God the God of the Jews only is he not the God of the Gentiles also you say isn't exclusive in Jesus or sorry isn't salvation in Jesus Christ exclusive yes it is but it's tremendously inclusive he challenges the Jews who have the law and boast in the law and say we keep this this proves that we're God's people this is what saves us and he goes hold on. Adam wasn't Jewish. The promises that God makes in the first few chapters of Genesis are a whole lot bigger than Israel. Is God only the God of the Jews? No, God is the God of everyone. And so he says this in verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. One God, one way of salvation, with or without circumcision, Jewish or Gentile, or any other ethnicity or religion, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the Why? Because Jesus is absolutely, completely, and utterly unique. Not just another teacher. Not just a good example. But God in the flesh who paid the penalty that we could not to freely offer us the life we didn't deserve. And the problem is assurance. Assurance. How can we know? Faith isn't something tangible. And at least if we had a list, we could tick the boxes and go, okay, I'm doing all right. We struggle with this. Faith is not a constant in our life where it's always feeling the same way. It goes up and it goes down. Sometimes we feel near. Sometimes we feel far. Sometimes we're desperate for Jesus. Sometimes we feel like we're doing okay. I found comfort. Set of the words of Luther, a woman came to him and she said, I just, I just don't know if I have enough faith. I don't know if I believe I, I try to, I struggle to, but I don't know if it's enough. And after responding to her, he told his friends this, it's the devil who puts such ideas into people's heads saying, ah, you must believe better. You must believe more. Your faith is not very strong and it's insufficient. In this way, he drives them to despair. We are so constructed by nature that we desire to have a conscious faith. We'd like to grasp it with our hands and shove it into our bosom. But this doesn't happen in life. We can't comprehend it, but we ought to apprehend it. We should hold to the word and let ourselves drag along in this way. What's he saying? He's saying, don't look at the faith. Look at Jesus. Hold on to that. That's what he asked this woman. He said, do you believe that Jesus died for you? And she said, absolutely. He said, that's it. That's what faith is. Here's where I'd like to leave us this morning. Faith alone basically means in Christ alone. Just the way that we take hold of Christ alone, what it looks like to stand on Christ alone, is accessed through faith. Now, why is that faith valuable? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We can have faith because God is faithful. Right? We take his word and we believe it. That's faith. But if there was no word of God, then there's nothing to stand on so what it looks like, like the psalmist we read this morning in Psalm 42, is not a sense or a feeling or a consciousness of faith where we can grab it and shove it into our bosom like Luther says. It's like the psalmist, hope in God, for I will yet praise him on the earth. It's trust, it says God has promised. There's an old Dave Blazon song based on the psalms. And he just says, if I look up and the sky's not there, is that any reason that I should be scared? Because a promise is a promise I know. Dave isn't always the best place to look for faith. But that's a pretty good articulation of what faith is. It's just apprehending. It's just taking hold of. It's standing on this. And you may be barely hanging on. But it's not your faith that saves you. It's what you've put your faith in. You may crawl across the bridge. You may be laying on the bridge, can't go another step forward. The bridge will hold you up. Let's pray. Father, we are designed in such a way that we want to be the hero of our own story. We want what we earn and what we deserve But what we deserve is death. And you have graciously given us so much more. You've given us the death of your Son. You've given us his resurrection. You've given us alien righteousness that we did not deserve, that we did not make, and you've declared us righteous by placing us in Jesus Christ. And that's where salvation is found not in our church membership, not in our baptism, not in us doing the things you call us to do, not in keeping our devotions or any of those things. All those things may flow from faith. But none of them are anything more than the evidence that you have done a great work in our life, the fruit of our salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would just cut away any scaffolding that we've built around our salvation that says, yes, I'm saved by Jesus and. And we would recognize that it's in Christ alone, by faith alone, because of your grace alone that we stand. I pray that you would hold us up in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.